Hey, everybody. The deadline to get your application in for the spring vintage of Village Global Accelerator is March 1st. Companies that have been through the accelerator have raised from some of the best venture funds in the world, like A16Z, Lux, Spark, Bessemer, Founders Fund, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash accelerator. Hey, everybody. It's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Logan Yuri. Logan is a Harvard-trained behavioral scientist turned dating coach and is the director of relationship science at Hinge. Uh, her new book, How to Not Die Alone, has just come out, and I am a big fan of Logan's writing, talks, and I'm excited to have Logan here on the show. Logan, welcome to the podcast. Eric, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. L- L- Logan, why did you write this book, and-, and what do you hope people take from it? Yeah, that's a great question to start us off. So first of all, just as the title says, I want to help people not die alone. And sometimes people tell me, oh, that title's so triggering. You're making me think about the fact that I'm single and I don't want to think about it. And that's the whole point. You might be on a path where you're headed towards not finding a partner, not finding somebody who you want to be with long term. And my whole point of my work is to help people actually spend time thinking about that and invest in their relationships. And my book focuses on romantic relationships in particular. But today, I'm really excited to dive into how that research can apply to all types of relationships. So getting into getting into the book, you, you use the lens of behavioral science uh, a lot and applying it to, to dating and relationships. Uh, why don't you give a big, quick background on what is behavioral science and, and why is it helpful for people to know about it? Sure. So I'm sure that some of your listeners are familiar with behavioral science, but I'll kind of just give the basic intro. Behavioral science is the study of how we make decisions. What's super interesting about this is the fact that we're all irrational, or as the behavioral science great Dan Ariely says, we're all predictably irrational. What that means is that we make decisions that are not in our own best interest and that we're affected by something called cognitive biases. Now, these are clouds in our judgment that prevent us from making good decisions. But when we say we're predictably irrational, that means that the same cognitive biases are harmful to to everyone, right? So we're all plagued by the same cognitive bias. So one of the ones that I think about often is called the present bias. And this is the fact that we overvalue the here and now, and we're bad about thinking about the future. So one ways that this plays out is we eat too much, we don't save enough for retirement, we don't exercise because we're focused on the hedonic pleasure of the now versus how we'll feel in the future. And so for my book, I take the frame that behavioral science is all about understanding our poor decisions decision making. And then there's actually a toolkit. There's a bunch of things that you can use that help you understand, okay, I'm aware of this bad decision making. How can I actually change my behavior to get to where I want to be? And so my philosophy is that a great relationship is the culmination of a series of small decisions. Make good decisions along the way and you end up in a great relationship. Make bad decisions along the way and you end up in a bad relationship or no relationship at all. So what I really want people to do is to actually be thoughtful and intentional at each step of the way, make better decisions, understand their blind spots, and that's how they'll overcome their bad behavior. What do you say to uh, to someone who says, oh, but what about the magic? You know, oh, what if I, you know, treat it like a board meeting? Will it lose uh, some, some, some magic? 
Um, what do you say to that? Eric, I'm glad you asked me that because that's actually one of my favorite questions and something that I love to push back on, and it's how I open the book. The first sentence of the book is, you shouldn't have to buy a book on love. Love is natural. It's an organic feeling. You know it when you have it. And what I say to that is, yes, love is this natural organic feeling, but dating and partner selection are not. And there's a number of reasons why that's true. One of them is that dating as we know it is actually a fairly new phenomenon. People didn't start dating in what we think of as dating until around the 1890s. Prior to that, people had arranged marriages. They had marriages of convenience. So the idea of two people meeting up and going on a date is actually very new. And then, of course, as you know, online dating has only been around since 1994. And app dating is something that was invented in the last 10 years. So the idea of dating as something natural, that's not true. Dating is a set of skills and people need help with those skills. And that's why in my book, I combine two fields of research. There's relationship science, the academic study of love, and then there's behavioral science, how we make decisions. And so I have this combination, which is behavioral science helps you make better decisions in dating and relationships. And we know what to optimize for in dating and relationships by looking at relationship science. And give us a line about how uh, app dating or online dating have sort of informed or evolved r- relationship science. I- is one idea just that there, because there's so much uh, so, you know, to choose from uh, in theory that now we have to be even more intentional? Or h- how has it sort of changed the, the science or, 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 or the approach? Yeah. So if you want to talk about relationship science itself as a study, you can just talk about the fact that there are now many thousands of data points that scientists can look at that weren't previously available to them. So some of the most interesting research on online dating is captured in the book Dataclism by Christian Rutter. And he talks a lot about basically a big data analysis of OkCupid research. And some of the things he finds have to do with the fact that women seem to find men attractive who are around their age or slightly older up until around the 50s. And men seem to all find women who are 21 years old the most attractive, no matter how old the man is. He finds that on a dating app, and this is in particular, we can get into the reasons why, a man who is 5'8 needs to make $40,000 more a year to be considered as desirable as a man who's 5'9". And so there's lots of interesting research that can be understood because you just have thousands and thousands of people, millions of people who are using dating apps, interacting in different ways. And if you have access to that data, you can actually just measure things like what can you put in your profile that makes you more desirable? What are the keywords that people seem attracted to? I mean, there was a study that came out a few months ago about men who put cats in their profiles are less successful on dating apps and why. So really the basic answer is there's just a lot more data that we have about how people present themselves, how people connect. And that is a great opportunity for us to to study things like attraction. What I'm actually doing at Hinge in my role as the director of relationship science is looking at another piece, something that hasn't been studied as much. And that's once people meet and once we've gotten past that attraction stage, what makes a great relationship? What makes people actually delete the app? And so we're doing a lot of research at Hinge to look into the people who have followed our mission statement, to, uh, you know, designed to be deleted. How did they delete the app? What worked out for them? And what can they teach us about how other people should be using the app? Yeah. And, and just to that example you brought up, why does someone, uh, a man have to make $40,000 more or, or whatever the analogy? Why, why does that matter? Yeah. So there's a concept 
called evaluability. What this basically means is that the easier it is to evaluate two things and compare them, the more that metric seems to matter. And so if you're at a bar and you are talking to a great guy and he's sitting down and you have an amazing conversation and you feel the chemistry, when he stands up, the first thing you think isn't, oh, he's 5'8 instead of 5'9, right? You're not focusing on his exact height. Sidebar, height has so much to do with posture, confidence, all these other things. But on an app, you're just comparing two numbers. You're comparing 5'8 and you're comparing 5'9. And you in your head start to think that these numbers are more important just because they're there. And this has to do with the concept that Dan Ariely says is, what measures is what matters. Merely measuring something makes it more important. This is why when you start measuring things like frequent flyer miles, people start optimizing for that. Whatever data you present, people are going to optimize for it. And dating apps are able to present some of the more superficial information, things like height, and age. One other thing I would say about that is that many people set filters. And so if your filter is set for 5'9 and above, it's going to be hard for that 5'8 guy to shine through. And that's another reason why we see this large discrepancy in $40,000 to be seen as as desirable. Yeah. I want to take the learnings that you've, you know, uncovered in this book as it relates to romantic relationships and see what can be applied to uh, to work relationships, particularly uh, co-founders. So we at Village and, and on deck think a lot about co-founder dating because uh, co-founder dating has taken some some evolutions to, uh, as well. First off, uh, you know, perhaps the biggest reason companies fail is co-founder breakups. So that's a big challenge that people pick the wrong co-founders. Two, similarly to how sort of you know apps reinvented the the selection for um, for romantic uh, uh, you know uh, relationships, communities like on deck and uh, you know sort of social networks have also expanded the pool of potential co-founders. And, and there used to be this trope of, hey, only start a company with someone you've known for, for a decade, but now you know, people are co-founder day. And, and there are stories of success, so people are, are, are now asking themselves, okay, how, and now that I know this can be done, how can I do it? So let, let's talk about some things that, that you've learned that might apply to, to co-founders. One, Absolutely. One, one that you outlined is, is the three dating tendencies. Why don't you unpack that concept and then talk about how it applies to co-founders? Yeah. So first of all, Eric, just at a high level, while I haven't started a company, I have worked at some large companies. And so I worked at Google, I worked at Airbnb. And it's really interesting to think about the importance of relationships at these companies. There was a saying at Google, you know, people don't leave their jobs, people leave bad managers. I think that the startup equivalent is, you know, people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad co-founders. And so I'm really glad that we have this opportunity to just talk about the importance of relationships. In preparing for this interview, I actually talked to quite a few founders about co-founder dating. And it was really fascinating for me to hear how my three dating tendency framework applies to them. So let me walk you through it. So the idea is that I would have these dating coaching clients. They would walk through my door. This was pre-COVID, sit on my couch, and they would describe to me their dating problems. And although my clients were all unique, I found that they suffered from the same set of blind spots. So these were patterns of behavior or attitude that prevented them from finding love, but which they couldn't identify on their own. And I've categorized this into the three dating tendencies. So the first dating tendency is called the romanticizer. And these are people who expect love to happen to them. They think love will be easy. They think that there's a soulmate out there waiting for them. They don't have to put effort in and love will come to them. The second one is the maximizer. And the maximizer is the one who has unrealistic expectations of their partner. They think, could I be 5% happier with somebody else? 
They think that if they do more research, they'll come up with the right answer. And the third one is the hesitator. The hesitator has unrealistic expectations of themselves. The hesitator thinks, in you know, when I lose 10 pounds, I'll be ready to date. And one day I'll wake up and be ready to date. But until then, I don't want to do that because I want to put my best foot forward. And they kind of have this idea of perfection. And so in talking to all of these uh, entrepreneurs who had gone through the co-founder dating, it seems like this really plays out in that arena too. So first we talked about the romanticizer. Now the romanticizer, when it comes to co-founder dating, this is the person who romanticizes starting a company. They love the whiteboard. They love thinking about new ideas. You know, they start off by saying, okay, we're going to do skills training for people in the green energy market. And then it becomes, we can upskill people in every market. We can make this global. We can have it in person. We can have it digital. We can, we can basically redefine education. And before you know it, they have invented an idea for a new university and suddenly the world has changed, but really all they have is a whiteboard. And so they really romanticize the idea of starting a company. And when it comes to the inevitable rough spot with their co-founder and with the company, it's not what they expected. They didn't realize that they'd been be spending 25% of their time thinking about HR and benefits and management. They didn't realize that actually you don't start by you, you know, it, it's not so easy to just disrupt education with your first few months as a company. And my advice to romanticizers in the book is to switch from what we call the soulmate mindset to the work it out mindset. The soulmate mindset is that love should be effortless. The work it out mindset is that if it feels like work, you're doing it right. The second type is the maximizer. And I can tell you, many of my clients are maximizers. I live and work in Silicon Valley. I imagine many of your listeners are maximizers. And maximizers are people who really want to turn over every stone before they make a decision. And how this relates to co-founder dating is that they want to meet with every possible person. They want to wait for the new YC class. They want to see who else Eric is going to introduce them to. And they think, oh, you know, he's really good, but I think he could be 5% better if he actually had a more technical background. Or, you know, I think I would be happier working with somebody else who's slightly more similar to me or slightly less similar to me. And they always think that the perfect co-founder is waiting just around the corner, when in reality, they need to become like a satisficer, which we can get into later. But they're much better off setting a benchmark and then saying, this person is is good enough and I'm going to invest in them. And then finally, the hesitator. And this came up a lot in my conversations. These are the people, if you work at a big company, you know this person. They're always just about to leave. They're always just about to start a company. But you know what? I want to start a startup that focuses on empowering electricians. So I need to go first become an electrician. And they're always, you know, 10 to 15 years away from the experience they would need to start the company. And look, the advice for hesitators who in dating is somebody out there as imperfect as you is going going on a date and they are learning how to date and they are learning how to get better at dating and they're figuring out what they want. Well, somebody with your exact same skill set is starting the company you want to start and you need to stop waiting to be 100% ready and you need to actually go out there and start that company because that's how you learn. I, I love that, that that framework. Thanks for sharing. You also have a, a, another one, the, the Mane effect. Can, can you unpack that and how it relates to dating and, and co-founder relationships? 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of my favorite movies is the movie Clueless. And in the movie Clueless, one of the characters asked the main character, Cher, oh, you know, Amber, she's so good looking. And she says, no, Amber is like a, a Monet. From far away, she looks great. But up close, she's a big old mess. And if you're familiar with the artist Monet, he used a type of painting called pointillism. And so from far away, you can get the image of it. But up close, all you see are all these little dots. And this is something that plays out in the corporate world. It plays out in the dating world. And as we're going to discuss today, it plays out in the co-founder dating world. So our brain has a natural tendency of when it sees a blurry image, it interprets it as something more attractive than what's actually there. And I don't know if your listeners would be familiar with this, but there was a company in the 90s called Glamour Shots, and they used to take pictures of you and they were sort of blurry and you looked more beautiful. And this is actually because of this sort of quirk of our brains or what I call the Monet effect. And so when our brain is lacking information, it fills in the gap with positive information. So this is how it plays out in the corporate world. When a company is hiring a new CEO, they might hire somebody who's internal or somebody who's external. With the internal person, they know that person's strengths and weaknesses because they've seen them perform. With the external hire, they only know the positives about that person because that's what they've chosen to share. And this is why it's we find that external CEOs are paid more than internal hires, but usually perform worse. Now, this is how it relates to dating. You meet someone on the app and they say, I like music. And you think, I bet they like exactly the same music I do. And you have this very, very rough outline of somebody, but your brain fills in the gap and you create a fantasy in your head. And before you even meet this person, you're like, this is my person. This is my soulmate. They're going to be great. Then you actually meet the person. And even if they are great, they are not the fantasy you had of them because that's something that you made up. So you're, you're not even interested in them because they're different than the idea that you created in your head. And that's why for those people, I recommend get to the date as quickly as possible. Don't do this pen palling thing where you're always match, you know, you're always texting. Don't say, I need to talk to you for two weeks before we meet up. Get on the video date, meet up in person safely. Actually just figure out who they are before you create that fantasy of them in your head. And that's how you overcome the Monet effect. And when it comes to co-founders, a lot of times people are led astray by seeing someone's resume. And they say, oh, this person was a CTO. When they meet up with them, they find out, yeah, they were the CTO of a company that their friend started in college, and that was for one summer, and they actually really don't know what a CTO does. And so understanding that seeing the resume, the written bullet points of somebody, that's really a rough outline of them. And as someone who's going through co-founder dating, my best advice for you is to actually just get to the quote-unquote date as soon as possible. And that means talking to the person, figuring out who they really are, don't fall victim to building up this fantasy in your head. Just actually meet with them and see what they're about. Yeah. So let's talk about criteria for, for the, in terms of when, when they meet with them, what should they be evaluating from a, you know, one thing we, we advise at OnDeck from just a pure skills perspective is, is somebody who helps you de-risk the business. So if you're doing, you know, something that's technical and in healthcare, ideally a team would have both the technical competence, but then also the healthcare relationships or ability to, to build those relationships such that they can, you know, have an unfair advantage in, in building this company. But that, that's the first thing we, we have people look for. But, but second is people who align on just first principles of how to build a company, uh, how they want to run a company, what success looks like, you know, are, are they aligned, uh, values aligned? How do they handle certain situations? How do they communicate? I'm curious, 
just broadly, when you think about criteria, whether, whether it's, uh, you know, on the romantic front, uh, what are things that we can learn about how, how you advise there for, for how people uh, should think about co-founder dating? Sure. Well, I will start off by saying, Eric, I absolutely defer to you about the qualities that matter for for starting a company, but I can provide some broad frameworks for how to do this in romantic relationships and maybe most interestingly, where people get this wrong. And so earlier, I talked about this idea of the present bias, the fact that we focus on the now and we're pretty bad at predicting what our future selves will be like and what they'll need. And in my book, I have a chapter called Go for the Life Partner, Not the Prom Date. So what is a prom date? A prom date is somebody who would be fun to dance with. Maybe you want to sleep with at the end of the night, would look good in pictures. But, you know, you're not really worrying about if they're going to be reliable in picking up your kids from the dentist or if they'll hold your purse in the oncology unit. And so a lot of people go for the person who's fun now as opposed to the life partner, the person who's reliable and has the qualities that matter. And the way that I know that people go after the wrong stuff is that in my work as a dating coach and a matchmaker, people come to me and say, here's what I'm looking for. And oftentimes, the qualities that they are really most interested in are not correlated with long-term relationship success. So just to run through those quickly, good looks and money. Of course, they both matter, but there's something called adaptation. We get used to whatever's around us, right? So behind every hot person is a person sick of having sex with them. And behind every rich person is probably someone who's sick of driving their Ferrari. So people really do get used to their circumstances. The second one is similar. Per- oh, sorry. The third one is similar personalities. People come to me and say, I'm so extroverted. I love to party. I wish my girlfriend were a night owl and stayed out with me till 3 a.m. And I say, no, you're basically too much as it is. Two of you in one relationship would be way too much. I can barely stand hanging out with you. No, I don't say that last part. But Anyway, you don't need to have the same personality as your partner, and you don't need to have the same hobbies. If you love being a triathlete and your partner doesn't, that's fine, as long as you create enough space in the relationship to invest in them and you don't resent them for having that hobby. Now, here are the things that matter more than people think they do, and this comes from the field of relationship science. Things like having a growth mindset, being kind, being emotionally stable, being loyal, being able to make hard decisions together and what side of you that person brings out. And as I say that list, I think all of those would be good for co-founders as they're thinking about things. And so what happens is you get distracted by the shiny stuff. You get distracted by the college the person went to, the fact that they had a really successful exit, the fact that they're part of some networking group that would probably be an easy way to fundraise. But those aren't the things that are gonna matter day to day. The things that are gonna matter day to day is, you know, if the company does poorly and you're running out of money, is this the person that you want next to you as you're deciding if you have to let people go? Is this the person whose reputation you want associated with yours? Is this a person with the growth mindset? In other words, do they look at life as something where skills are things that you can develop and grow over time? Or do they think you're given what you're given and you can't change? Because honestly, working with people with a fixed mindset is very frustrating. And so I would encourage people, as people are starting the co-founder dating journey, they should think about the fact that they're going to be distracted by the shiny things and instead make a list of what really matters. And Eric, this is probably something that you know more about than I do. But by making that list and sticking to it and including things like a person with whom I could make hard decisions, they're likely to be less tempted to choose that shiny person and maybe inc- maybe instead choose what I call the slow burn, the person who's not as charming or immediately attractive, but grows on you over time. And those make 
the best partners, both in romantic relationships and business relationships. I, 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 I totally agree with the slow burn, especially because any you know successful company is going to take you know many years, if, if not decades, to to, to build, and, and and so it needs to be there for the, for the long haul. I, I want to return to something you you brought up earlier. Uh, you talked about uh, maximizers, and then you also talked about satisficers. Can you sort of uh, unpack the, the difference there and and why one might be happier as a, as a satisficer? Absolutely. So this is a concept that comes from the sociologist Herbert Simon in the 1950s. And the idea is that there's two types of people. There are people who divide people into two types of people and those who don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Well, that's also true. But anyway, I'm one of the people that likes to divide people into two or four types of people or three. So the first is the maximizer. So as I discussed, the maximizer is someone who wants to turn over every stone. They want to do all of their research. They believe that there is an objective right answer and that if they do research and see the total set, they can get to the right right decision. The second type is a satisficer. And this is a person who sets a bar. They have expectations. And once they find something that satisfies those expectations, then they choose it and accept it and invest in it. And people often hear the word satisfice and they think settle. Oh, satisfice or settle. That's not true at all. You can set an extremely high bar. The point is that once you find someone or something that fulfills that bar, you choose it, invest in it and move on. And this is the key thing about maximizers versus satisficers. Maximizers are focused on making the objective right decision. But even once they make a decision, they often wonder if they made the correct one. And they worry, oh, should I have done this? Should I have done that? Satisficers make great decisions, and they feel good about them. And so this is the thing, what is more important to be right, or to be happy? And satisficers are so wise because they're much better at being happy because how you feel about the decision, your subjective experience is so much more than, it's so much more important than the objective decision itself. What are steps that one can take in order to become more of a satisficer? So there's a really interesting mathematical riddle called the secretary problem. Are you familiar with that? Uh, only by reading your, your work, but uh, I wouldn't okay. know. Sure. So this is a concept that I learned about through the book Algorithms to Live By. And I want all of your listeners to imagine that they are hiring a secretary. And this should specifically be a male secretary. I hope nobody's just uh, stereotyping here. But anyway, everyone can be a secretary, or maybe we should call this the admin problem. But the idea is that you're hiring for a secretary and you have 100 possible candidates. You need to evaluate each one, one at a time. After you've talked to each person, you say yes or no, and you can't go back. And so what's what's hard about this is, do you go through a few people and make the decision too early and you don't know what's left? What if you wait until the 97th person and you don't like anyone and you should have gone with someone earlier? And so what the mathematically correct solution is, is the 37% mark. After you've gone through 37% of your possible candidates, in this case, 37 secretaries, then you say who was the best candidate of the first 37. And that is now your meaningful benchmark. And then you then look forward and the next time that you find someone who's as good or better than that person, that's who you choose. And so how you apply this to dating is interesting. You don't know how many quote unquote applicants you're gonna have, but you might estimate how long you'll be dating. So let's say you're gonna date from the years of age 18 to 40, then what's the 37% mark? 
and it's the age of 26.1. So by the age of 26, you have likely already dated somebody who's that meaningful benchmark. And now you should marry or invest in the next person who's as good or better than that meaningful benchmark. And why this is important is because it helps you see that you already have enough information to make a decision. I imagine most people listening and definitely the people I work with are over the age of 26. And so instead of thinking more research is always better, there are these hidden costs to waiting and you really need to find a meaningful benchmark, find someone who satisfies it and invest in that. And I think how this applies to co-founder dating is that so many of us are maximizers. We think we can research our way to the best solution and instead realize so much of success is the effort you put into something versus choosing the perfect partner. And so the sooner you can find someone great and invest in building a relationship or a company, the better. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to talk about breakups and, and, and what we can learn um, from romantic relationships to, to co-founder dating. So um, in, in the book, you talk about, you know, when to end things versus, versus when to mend things. Um, when you unpack your, your frameworks about, you know, when to, when, when to end versus when to mend. Absolutely. So first of all, I'm really glad you asked me about this. I think the breakup research in the book is one of the most intriguing parts. It doesn't come up enough, but honestly, one of the best ways to get into a great relationship is by getting out of a bad or mediocre one. And I never thought that I would be a breakup consultant. That's just a random thing that I invented, but people really do come to me a lot to decide should I end it or mend it. And going back to categorizing people into two categories, uh, there's a there's a framework here that I've come up with called ditchers or hitchers. So ditchers are people who don't invest in relationships. These are the people who date for three to six months, they find something wrong with the person and they get out of it. And they're always in a series of new relationships. And what's wrong with these people's thinking is something called the transition rule. And this is the idea that we think that the act of changing from one state to another is how it will feel to actually be in that state. And so, for example, when I say to you, how will it feel to win the lottery? You think about going from being a non-lottery winner to a lottery winner, not how it'll actually feel 10 years later when you're used to being a lottery winner. And this goes back to that concept of adaptation. This is how it relates to love. I can I confuse the act of falling in love, which is very intense, with the act of being in love. And falling in love is a different chemical reaction than being in love. And so once I'm in the being in love stage, which is a totally natural transition, I think, oh, this, there's something wrong with this partnership because I don't feel that initial chemistry anymore. And therefore, I need to move on to the next one. And so my advice to ditchers is to actually see what it's like to give relationships a chance, realize that they are underestimating the opportunity cost of learning how to be in a relationship, and see what it's like when they choose a different path. The other type of person is the hitcher. And these are people who stay in relationships past their expiration date. Two of the cognitive biases behind these people are the sunk cost fallacy and loss aversion. So sunk cost fallacy is the idea that you throw good money after bad. Once you've invested in something, you want to keep going after it. It would be like if you paid $20 to go to an improv show and it was it was terrible and you th- said, well, I already paid money to go to the show. I might as well wait. And that's that's wrong because yes, you've paid the money, but why not leave and go for a walk or listen to a podcast as opposed to suffering again? You've paid the money and you have to be there. And in relationships, they think I've been in this relationship for five years. I don't want to start over. Sunk cost fallacy. The other thing at play is loss aversion. And this is our natural tendency to avoid loss. And And the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky found that people actually experience 
lost as twice as painful as the equivalent gain. So basically, the pain that you would feel from losing $100, you'd have to gain $200 to feel the equivalent pleasure. And so what that means here is that People are so afraid of losing a relationship, even if it's not a good one. And what I recommend hitchers do is to understand that there might be a great relationship waiting for them on the other side, and that by not making a decision, they are making a decision. And so how this might relate to co-founders, and Eric, I would truly love to hear your opinion on this, is I imagine there are some people out there that either keep starting companies or keep imagining starting companies, but then they give up on their co-founder or their idea too soon. And what these people should really do is just choose a person, invest, and see what opens up for them when they actually really dedicate their time and energy to one project. And for the hitchers out there, I would say there are probably people listening right now who are in a really toxic co-founder relationship and a certain point they need to call it. And what I'd say to those people is you imagine that you're on a road and that you're going straight ahead and that's the status quo and that it would be a really sharp turn to the right to get out of that co-founder relationship. Instead, imagine you're at a T-junction. To the right is staying in the partnership and to the left is breaking up with your co-founder. And suddenly you understand that you have two choices to make and that staying is also a choice. I, I think that's a, that's a great, great, great perspective. I think a lot of things do, do overlap. I think one slight nuance is, I, would, I would add is this idea that if you are you know, serious about entering a committed relationship and you determine that this person is not the long your your person you're dating is not the long term fit. It's probably best to save your time and save that person's time and 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 you know go find someone who could be a long person fit. Whereas if you you could be serious about building a big company, ready to commit, but also have an idea in the back of your mind that hey this this co founder might actually be good for one year, might actually be good for 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 two years, like might be the perfect person for right now. But as you scale, you know might not be, and you could sort of you know, hit that decision when, when, when you come to it, because there are sort of many founding moments uh, w within a company and it sort of needs change over time. Eric, I think that that's a great point. And I'm thinking of some analogies to dating. So for some people, they might be pretty young and they might say like, I want to get a bunch of different experiences. I'm not ready for a long-term partner. You know, I'm going to date this opera singer for a year because it's super interesting and she travels all the time. And I actually want to be in a less serious relationship. And I don't care about dating someone right now who I would marry. But for a lot of people, they do need to make that transition from the prom date to the life partner, especially if we're talking about women and women who want to have children through natural childbirth or, you know, give birth to their own children by a certain age. They do need at some point to take themselves more seriously and to say, I don't have to marry this person, but I don't want to date someone who I actively wouldn't marry. And so I think you're making a good point, which is that in a career, you're going to have a lot of different jobs. You're going to have a lot of different co-founders potentially. You might learn from somebody for a year and that stages of dating or like that. But if you are someone who's interested in a monogamous long-term partner, you need to have a different framework. Okay. So uh, that, that's some great advice on how to think about you know when to end it versus, versus when to mend. Uh, how about when you've decided you, you need to end it? The, the time is now. W what is your advice on how to do that successfully? Yes. So through my research at Hinge, one thing has really become clear, which is how bad people are about ghosting. And so in our research, we found that ghosting is the number one issue among modern daters. And there is a key reason why. 
For people who ghost, they think, oh, it's so awkward to reject someone. And I wouldn't want to give them an outright rejection because that might hurt their feelings. And it's pretty awkward to reject someone. So they're sort of saving themselves from confrontation. When you actually ask daters, would you prefer to be rejected or, you know, ghosted or slow faded overwhelmingly, 86% of people say, reject me outright, I'd already know. And this is the key insight, Eric, which is that people do not like swimming in ambiguity. People like having certainty. And so if you go back and forth for days or months or years wondering, is this the right romantic partner? Is this the right co-founder partner? You're really wasting somebody's time. And if you decide that actually you want to end things, you should do it as soon as possible because that's the most respectful thing to do. And so to avoid ghosting, I recommend that people send a kind but firm text, depending on how long you've been with someone. If not, you should do it on the on the phone or in person. And you say something like, I've given this a little, well, this would be the text, something like, hey, so-and-so, I really enjoyed meeting you. I don't think we're a romantic fit. Thanks for the date. And if it's someone that you've been dating longer, obviously you're going to you're going to say it in person and put more effort into it. But the whole point, the underlying thing is this kind but firm and doing it as soon as possible. And people who are out there saying, "Well, I don't know and I want to keep my options open." That's really a flawed concept. Throughout the book, I talk about the fact that we are bad at predicting our future states. We are bad at what's called affective forecasting, predicting how different situations will affect us. And so one of the things is that humans love optionality. They love the ability to make reversible decisions. But there's some really interesting research that shows we are much happier when we have irreversible decisions. And so if you're wondering whether to keep the door open or keep the door closed, I would recommend ending that relationship, doing it in a kind but firm way, and actually saving that person from the ambiguity. Uh, th- 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 that's really helpful. I, I want to zoom out and-, and ask a question back to romantic relationships, but it affects you know everybody listening, which is this idea of or this question, how do you balance a busy career and a fulfilling romantic life? How, how do you think, advise and think about that balance? Because you work with a lot, of, a, a lot of very busy people. Yeah. So there's so many different ways that I could take this question. I think part of it is just understanding why a fulfilling romantic life matters. And so the research shows that our health, happiness, and overall life satisfaction hinge on the quality of our relationships. So we are not just talking about fluffy stuff. We are just talking about the stuff that really matters in life. And if you're familiar with this concept of beds, of deathbed regrets, nobody on their deathbed says, I wish I had been better at Excel. I wish I had, you know, had a slightly higher carry with my first investment. That's not what people are thinking about. People are saying, I wish I had a close relationship with my mother. I wish that I had spent more time with my kids. I wish I had invested more in my partner. And so people intuitively know that, but I don't think that they necessarily prioritize it. And so part of my answer is just invest in your relationship. Understand that partnerships are very fulfilling. And if you have a vision that I have these ambitious career goals and I don't have time for a relationship and that would only take up time, you're sort of missing the point because relationships don't just take from you, they also give to you. And being in partnership and getting feedback and having someone who's invested in your success and who celebrates the good things and is there with you through the failures, that person is going to make you more successful. And Eric, I can talk about my personal life, but I've been with my now husband for the last six years. And through being with him, he's my rock. He's my support. And that meant that I could go from this safe tech job to actually quitting my job, pursuing my passion for dating and relationships full time. And he really has given me the courage to take this leap. And he's not a distraction. He's 
enabling me and empowering me to fulfill, you know, my career ambitions. And so I have a feeling that a lot of people listening, they've got the busy career down, right? They know how to work hard. They have the productivity hacks. They read Atomic Habits. That's not the problem. The problem is that they are potentially not investing enough time into their relationships. And so for everyone listening right now, what is one thing that you could actually do today to invest in your relationship? Is that sending a text to an old friend for a catch-up phone call? Is it telling your partner, if you have one, one thing that you're grateful for? And really... If you are a productive, ambitious, career-oriented person, that part's going to come natural to you. What you really need to do is create time and energy in your life to invest in relationships. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a that's a great note to to, to close on. I have a, a couple more questions. One is throughout the book, you mention uh, the Gottmans a lot, uh, John and Julie Gottman. Uh, why don't you unpack who they are, their their major contribution, and, and how we can apply their their research to, to business relationships? Sure. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought them up. They are some of my heroes and I consider them the forefather and foremother of, re- of relationship science. So John Gottman is a really fascinating guy. He's basically been studying romantic relationships for the last 40 years. And he and his partner, Robert Levinson, they ran something called the Love Lab. And so what they would do is they would invite a couple in for the weekend and they would measure everything. They had cameras all over. They had microphones. They had something called a gigalometer, which is a thing under a chair to see how much you're moving around. They would even measure the urine in the toilet. And of course, all of this was, you know, completely understood by the people participating. But what they were doing was they were studying how different couples interact. And so they had a series of things that they would measure and they were marking facial expressions, all of these different things. Six years later, they followed up with these couples. And some couples were what they called relationship masters, and they were really killing it in the relationship department. And some were called relationship disasters. They had either ended their relationship or they were together unhappily. And when they looked back at the original research from the Love Lab, the thing that stood out to them most was this idea of a bid. And a bid is a verbal or nonverbal attempt at connection. And so an obvious bid might be saying to someone, hey, how was your day? And you want to connect with them. A nonverbal bid might be touching somebody's back when you're lying in bed together or sighing when you're reading an email. And in that moment, you're inviting the person to connect with you and say, hey, what's wrong? Or, you know, what's going on for you? And what they found was with the relationship masters, they turn towards each other 86% of the time. Turning towards is when you accept that bid to connect and you follow up. There's also something called turning away. And these are people who are either ignoring the person's bids or maybe even responding negatively. So, oh, why are you always sighing? You know, I'm trying to focus on work or just not responding at all. And so relationship masters turn towards each other 86% of the time and relationship disasters turn towards each other only 33% of the time. Why this relationship is so interesting is that people think that relationships are about these big romantic gestures, right? That one week a year where you and your partner go to Hawaii and try to reignite the spark. But that, that doesn't really work. Relationships are built every single day and The best way to invest in your relationship is by giving bids and turning towards your partner when they accept bids. That's uh, that's that's super helpful. Gearing towards closing here, what other pieces of research or advice in your book would help startup founders or, or VCs listening? Eric, we truly talked about a lot of my favorite pieces of research in the book, right? We talked about the three dating tendencies, romanticizers, maximizers, and hesitators. We talked about these two types of people who stay in relationships too short or too long, the ditchers and hitchers, and we even covered upon 
John and Julie Gottman. But one piece of research that comes to mind that your listeners might be interested in is a concept from behavioral science called the peak end rule. And this is research from Daniel Kahneman. And so he basically looked at people who were getting colonoscopies. And he found that people actually prefer colonoscopies that are slightly longer, but end in a less painful way. And the idea here is that we disproportionately remember things based on the peak moment and the end. So with that in mind, for a date, you should always end on a high note. And that might mean ending with a meaningful compliment or ordering dessert. And, you know, we're doing this on Zoom, so I can't order dessert. But I'll end by saying, Eric, thanks for all the great work that you do in the world. Thanks for the great community building. And thanks for being a great friend. That's a perfect place to, to end on. Thank you, Logan. The book is How to Not Die Alone. Uh, I've, I've read it. I, I highly enjoyed it and have learned a lot from it. And I recommend that, that, that you buy it as well. Uh, Logan, where, where can people find it or learn more about, about your work? Yeah. So the book is available where all great books are sold. It's on Amazon. There's a Kindle version. There's an audio book that I read. So if you liked the sound of my voice today, then buy the audio book. If you hated the sound of my voice today, then the Kindle or hardcover is available to you. If you don't like Amazon, there's lots of independent booksellers where you could get this. And people can follow me at Logan Yuri, And they can also go to my website, loganyuri.com, where they can take their own version of the three dating tendencies quiz. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.